Hi, I'm Mary Doherty. I'm a Jungian analyst and a member of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago, and I am delighted to introduce this podcast of Jean Shinoda Bolin speaking at the Jung Institute of Chicago about her book, Crohn's Don't Whine. In this presentation, Jean Bolin outlines what she means by the Crohn archetype. The term Crohn refers to the third and final phase within the three phases of a woman's life, maiden, mother, and crone, aligning with the three phases of the moon. In earlier times, the term crone was a term of honor reserved for women in this third phase of life. In native Indian culture, women in this phase were called grandmother, as a place of honor in the tribe and as holders of wisdom. Boland wants to reclaim the title of crone to describe the person, woman or man, who comes to accept the unfulfilled expectations from their earlier life without whining. Crones don't whine about their unfulfilled expectations from the past, but rather suffer and mourn paths not taken or opportunities not pursued with compassion for oneself and others. At the same time, crones savor the present moment. That includes living with a sense of purpose and authenticity while remaining open to the unexpected and the unanticipated pleasures and challenges that life continues to present as it unfolds. I hope you enjoy this tape as much as I did. Good listening. As many of you have heard me lecture before, and you may know that I have a number of these tops in different colors. And so when I come in and see the flowers being an exact match, I know we're starting out with just some basic invisible rapport. <laughs> and uh, it is always a pleasure to be at the Jungian Institute in Chicago. It's a place that I have spoken and taught here probably more than any other Jungian Institute, including my own, over the many years that I've been a Jungian analyst. It's something like 34 years now. And it's uh, when I first wrote Goddesses in Every Woman, it was actually 20, it was published 20 years ago. So one thing about time is that it certainly passes unexpectedly fast. And the experience of, um, of, not writing about Hecate or the archetypes of the crone when I wrote Goddesses and Every Woman was basically because I was too young to do that. And um, now that I've written Crones Don't Wine, I, I realize that, one, it is written for women especially who are entering the third phase or are in the third phase of their lives, but it's also for pre-crones and crones in training. And included in it is a chapter that exceptional men can be crones. So at some point, if it's possible to redeem the word crone and give it back the original honored meaning it had as the third phase of the great goddess of maiden, mother, crone, 
and the image reflected by the moon. So there was the waxing moon of the maiden, and that was the young versions of Persephone and 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 the young versions of, of Artemis and Athena as maiden goddesses. And then there is the mature womanly goddesses like Aphrodite, uh, when in her majesty she was revered. And with almost every relationship, she had a child of that relationship. And then there, there was Demeter or Demeter, who was a mother archetype, and Hera, who was the archetype of the wife. And those are the major archetypes that, that women's roles resonates with, with in the mid-phase, middle, full moon phase of life. Well, when I got to be old enough to think about the crone archetypes in terms of of, of being postmenopausal myself, for one thing, it it I was g- given the question often by some wise women when I told the story of of Demeter and Persephone, which I often have, by and have emphasized different things. I would hear, "What about Hecate?" and uh, when I started looking at the various archetypes of older women, the, in which the Greeks personified older women, they were really not much to be found. It was like our culture, that basically when you get to be in the third phase of your life, the images that you see don't reflect you, or if they do, they don't reflect you positively. <laughs> and what I realized in First How Fast Time Flies and I, I remember being shocked when I was 50 and got an invitation in the mail from the AARP. <laughs> you know, you get a birthday card and you get an invitation to join the American, what is it, Association of Retired People at the same time. And then when I got my Medicare card, I was really kind of shocked about becoming a member of the Medicare generation. And I realized that that we happen to be, those of us over 50, and I would imagine that most everybody in this room is probably over 50. The Jungians are second half of life folks, for the most part. <laughs> it's a psychology that, that, uh, that either you're in the second half of life or you really have gone deeply within early in life for good reasons. And so there is a wisdom, and there's a wisdom archetype. So when I... When I talk about crone, I'm talking about a lot of different things. I'm talking about the third phase of the great goddesses, maiden mother crone. I'm talking about the postmenopausal phase in women's lives. I'm also talking about the crone archetype that can be in men, that can show up early in life when it's needed, and often the, the person whose life is is been very difficult, where parental figures have not been supportive and, in fact, have been abandoning or people or have been part of the problem, often it is an interior wise person archetype that has helped sustain a young person through some very difficult times in life. So the crone archetype can be considered the wise observer witness that knows when you are at a crossroad what the issues are, uh, what your choices might be, and without judgment with compassion and with the ability to wait and be your witness, that is something about what an interior crone archetype is like. I thought about how the most traumatized people in the world, uh, traumatized early in life, uh, 
with no support to, to be protected from the abuse that then leads to multiple personalities. I think you do have to have a psyche that can fragment into multiples, but you also have to have a really difficult and traumatic number of experiences to do that and to keep doing that, and then to find that the research that was done by Ralph Allison and, and others who worked with multiples, that in spite of all of that, somewhere in the psyche of a person who has split off into many separate personalities when and when each time the trauma was too much to bear, there was some part of the psyche that still watched and kept track. And uh, they, it was referred to as the inner self-helper. It was the part that could be reached, often under hypnosis, working with, these, with people that were multiples. But it occurs to me that any archetype or any fragment of the personality that is part of somebody else is an inherent possibility in us all. Because every archetype, male and female, young and old, are potential patterns in the psyche. That's what the collective unconscious is all about. The potential that we all tap into, the potential of knowing. Um, those of you who read um, fiction and have read fiction all your life, you know that you have a deep empathy and sympathy as you imagine yourself into, without much difficulty, somebody very different than yourself. That you could be 12 years old reading about a prisoner in another country or an old person. And there's something about that capacity of the psyche to move into the words, into the images, into the feelings, and understand this other person without ever meeting in real life someone like that or having the kind of experience that you are now reading about. Well, when you postulate that there is in all of us a collective unconscious that has all of the potential that any human has ever felt and could be, that that's part of us all. The, the, the poet Terence once said that nothing foreign, nothing human is foreign to me. And that is what we all share. At the, I think of it as an aquifer. You know, when you, when you dig a well and the water table is underneath, that, that what comes up is water that a, a well that's tapped much further away can also tap into. This is something of the collective unconscious and why there are such things as patterns that when they are then come up in us and we live out our particular variation of it, we can recognize the general pattern. And that's why goddesses in every woman, gods in every man, we're the kind of aha-recognized images because, one, they've been images that have been around in Western civilization forever and are images that resemble the patterns that we automatically recognize in other people, in our readings, and in ourselves, but the particular variation um, is one that we give our own coloration, uh, detailing. The detail work is our own life. So think about how all of us have a crone archetype in us, and one that, like an inner self helper, has been with us witnessing our lives growing over time as we have grown through our, especially through our descents, especially through our suffering especially through our compassion for other people who have had a difficult life to lead. And we can reach out with our heart and with our imagination to know something of what that other person's experience is like. Well, every time we do that, 
we are developing a quality of, cro- of the crone archetype that has to do with compassion and understanding and wisdom. It also, because it is an archetype, it may be an archetype that is associated with being an older person, but an archetype is an archetype, and it, it itself, when you grow into any archetype, there's a new vitality. As you, as you connect with it, as you realize that that's where your psychic energy wants to go, that the patterns that we live out in the first phase of our adult life and then our middle phase of our adult life, well, for women especially, the blood mysteries separate those periods, that you become a woman biologically when you have your first menstrual period. You become a mother biologically, which transforms your body and your psyche um, when you get pregnant. And if you carry that baby to term, your life has been changed from that point on because you have a commitment to this new life uh, as long as that new person lives. And you have a connection with with subordinating your own immediate needs to that child, that baby, as that baby grows from being totally dependent on you to an independent person. So I often think of motherhood as a spiritual practice, that it it teaches you uh, a lot. <laughs> and it, it certainly confronts you with your shadow. Uh, you know, you're not... You're not eternally patient. You may have an archetype that is, but but in the midst of of things, uh, a a child can get you when you're really tired, and your the the range of who we are when we love our children and find that we also are engaged in a process over which we have a great deal of influence, but really no control. <laughs> is one of the experiences that, that helps us to grow. The women, by being in, in, a, in the body we're in, learn very early with the first menstrual period, in fact, that we are not in control of our bodies. So that is actually an exceedingly important lesson, to understand that we have to adapt to something that happens inside of us over which we may not have much control. We don't have control over when we begin to menstruate, and we usually don't have control over when we end our, our menstruation and enter menopause. And at each particular stage of life, we are physiologically or biologically in a different phase. So we really sense in the body uh, when we enter the blood, through the blood mysteries, menarche, our menstrual years, our our pregnancy and lactation years, and then when menopause, perimenopause begins and and we then get to menopause, we know that a phase of life is over and we are on the threshold in perimenopause of a new phase. That is a reality that then brings about an awareness of change. And for many women who had have wanted more children, or who have wanted children and began, especially because of the, the ability that we have to be educated and have careers and, and, and defer becoming pregnant, which women never had historically as we have. We came in, we who are now over 50, came in with the pill. Before the birth control pill, 
women in general had no control over how many children they would have or when they would have them. Once you had intercourse, once you got pregnant, uh, it changed your life. Not since the women's movement have women such as us had the possibility and the reality and sometimes even the necessity of having an outer life in the world and also had children and a family. This is a whole, what I, what I really have realized myself and want to pass on to, to women in the third phase of life is how unique we are. That if you go back to the Greeks and think that was the beginning of democracy, or, or the cradle of democracy, well, it wasn't for women. It just wasn't. It was for men. But women were owned by men. Women could not manage any anything worth more than a, a bushel of barley. A non-virgin daughter could be sold by her father into slavery. This was not the cradle of democracy for women. Uh, we in the United States did not have the vote until 1920. Um, in the 19th century, if a woman if a woman worked, she was obliged to to turn all, all the money she earned over to her husband. Things have gotten enormously better for women in a very short period of time, and we happen to be living in this particular time when all that happened. The pill, Roe v. Wade, which allowed women who got pregnant and didn't want to carry that baby to term for any number of reasons. One could not get an abortion even if you had a heart condition that would kill you uh, in most places in the United States uh, before Roe v. Wade. And as a beginning psychiatrist, uh, it was possible, I, I learned that it was possible for women to, to get a safe abortion, but only if a psychiatrist uh, wrote or an internist wrote that it was necessary in order to save the mother's life, which for a psychiatrist meant that, that the woman had to know that if she came to see a psychiatrist to in order to get an abortion, she had to say, I will kill myself if I cannot have this abortion. And so the, you know, that was just in the, in, in the, in the, the early 70s in California. How much things have changed. How is it, for example, that being 50 is nothing anymore? 50, you celebrate it, you feel surprisingly young still, most of us, when if you were born at the beginning of the 20th century, you didn't expect to live beyond 50. 50 was when people usually died. So here we are. At 50, you, can, you, 50, you have a, a particular interesting uh, perspective. One, uh, undoubtedly at 50, you've known contemporaries who've died. That with the combination of breast cancer and AIDS and accidents and suicides and whatever the kinds of things that happen to people. I don't, I think it's pretty hard to be 50 years old and not have a, a someone missing in your life who was your own age. So just to be here is an, is, is a privilege in lots of ways. And to be here and to be healthy and to have a mind, we also are in this position as a sandwich generation of also appreciating that we see our parents in their ailing years, and many of whom 
uh, suffer as they grow older a dementia. So we have this experience of having a contrast between what we may have ourselves and what we are aware of of that happened to other people. And this is why a basic perspective is in, in thinking about savoring the good things in life, which is one of the 13 qualities that I listed for concentrated wisdom for juicy women, was that women savor the good in, in life. And in part of it, it has to do with you have to live long enough to be a connoisseur of anything. You know, you've got to, when you think about a connoisseurs of fine wines or fine food, you really have to have eaten a lot of bad meals, have drunk a lot of bad wine, to really relish something and savor a wonderful meal, a wonderful glass of wine. And it's true about life, that when you have lived as long as any of us who enter the second half and then the last third of life, all of us have a sense of perspective within our own lifetimes and in our own our, ourselves, that, that a, a beautiful day is special, a day in which for some people you wake up, up without a single pain anywhere is special. Uh, there's an appreciation for the kinds of things that lots of younger people just take for granted. And every time you appreciate something and think this is wonderful or that is beautiful or I'm just so glad that I am here or I am doing this, there is a in that appreciative feeling a thank you whether it's to the universe or whatever, or to Mother Nature when you see something beautiful, or to divinity. At some point, there is a self-connection when you appreciate something and know that you are blessed by having this experience and also know that someone else, for example, that you would love to see this with you also isn't here anymore. Now, the reason I, I uh, put as the first quality... Crohn's don't whine, is because that is the essential element that a whining person is someone who feels entitled to something other than what they have. Somehow there is that assumption that my kids should treat me better or my husband should have had a better job or I should not have gotten divorced or this illness that I have shouldn't have happened to me. And I am bitter, and I am angry, and I am whining about my awful fate. And yet, I'm still here. And what does it, what about the sense of entitlement? If you have any perspective of wisdom, any awareness of empathy for the vast majority of human beings on this planet, you know, an American living now is a very privileged person indeed. And so the whining that has to do with, 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 it has to do always with being stuck in the past. So you get up to this third phase of your life. And for some women, for example, it is a time of mourning because I wanted to have one more child or I wanted to have a child and I didn't start trying to have a child until I was 40 and all those in vitro things didn't work and I really am mourning that the possibility of biologically having a child is over. And there is that experience of mourning what cannot be. That is also part of life. And this is not the same as whining. This is 
doing the grief work of whatever it is. If you arrive at the third phase of life and life has turned out quite differently than you expected in some significant ways, it may be a time to mourn the loss of whatever it was in order to, to go fully present into the next phase. If you whine, you, 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 you burden yourself and everybody around you with the assumption that you are this victim that is owed because that's your attitude. I was entitled to more. I am owed. And everybody then sort of backs away because it's really bad energy, you know. Somebody makes you feel like you are obliged and therefore should feel guilty that you don't want to spend time with them. Well, uh, I hope that women who might have turned out to be whining martyr mothers might recognize themselves before it's too late and realize that no one started out with the intention of being one of these caricatured uh, martyr mothers. That is someone often who really put out a great deal of effort and energy in the second half of her life and had some mistaken idea of payoff. Remember Mother Portnoy's complaint? Or something that was there was, there was um, what was that book? Uh, it's Portnoy's complaint. Portnoy's complaint, and and there was a a research done when that book was very um, successful about Mother Portnoy, and it had to do with women who were hospitalized with involutional depression at 50, 60. We don't actually see that much anymore. Uh, and it, it's just called involutional depression, first-time serious impre- depressions. Women who had devoted their whole selfless lives to being mother, and then life didn't turn out in the third phase to amount to much. And the anger at how things didn't turn out, the mistaken idea that there was going to be some kind of appreciative payoff or something other than what they had, which, which, which we then called an empty nest syndrome. So... Um, we don't see that too much anymore because women have much more choice about what they're going to do with their lives. I mean, if you had to be a mother, whether that archetype was yours or not, and you really worked hard at it, you didn't really expect when you had an empty nest to be left with nothing because you didn't develop any other part of yourself. And that kind of anger and that kind of depression uh, isn't something we see a lot anymore. We, we don't see it very much and that has a lot to do with the the choices that we had. Also, probably our antidepressants work better. Uh, but there is something about that place where when you get to the third phase of life, you know how rapidly time has gone by, and there is a giving up of the youthfulness that you had when your hormones start to shift on you. And uh, there is a sense that on the outside you're growing older, and a culture that only looks at the outside. What is interesting, really, about the third phase of life, and is, is one that, that increasingly women are appreciating, is that it can be, and often is, the most authentic time in your entire life. The time when you have an opportunity to develop creativity, do the kinds of traveling in your mind or in, in the outer world that you've always wanted time for. And there is an opportunity in the third phase of life to speak up more than at any time in your life. Uh, this is one of the things that, that make older women kind of loose cannons in lots of people's experience. <laughs> is that it, it isn't the kid who says the emperor has no clothes. It's probably a crone. 
so here we are, this generation who is living longer because of good medicine and all the different roles that we've had and the choices we've made. So there's a level of vitality. There is the opportunity just since the 1970s to have access to education through affirmative action, uh, uh, entry to professions and to work that women were always excluded from. Um, So here we are, a generation that has been influenced by experiences that have happened just since the end of the 1960s to now. And I can see how remarkable a generation we are and how uh, there has never, ever in history, written history, ever been a generation like the women after 50, not only in terms of the ordinariness of being well-educated and competent in the world and having had relationships, often having had children, and the richness of the variedness of women's lives after 50 since the 70s allowed it to be. And there is the experience of the women who made it happen, which was that first generation who are now mostly over 60 and some over 70, who led the parade and who were the ones who marched and burned bras and and took cases to court and changed the world for women and men as a result in the United States in the 70s without a war, without without uh, a massive uh, media effort, without without raising millions of dollars to campaign for it. Ordinary women meeting together in consciousness-raising groups told the truth of their own lives to each other, drew inferences from that, thought about their lives, were supported to do what then they knew they could do, and usually it meant that they they spoke up, uh, insisted on defining themselves within the relationships they had. And so the women's movement generation was known as a generation that redefined it at every decade, what a woman could be, and 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 we had uh, Gloria Steinem very often speaking up to exactly that. She first said at 40 when people said, oh, Gloria, you don't look like 40. She said, this is what 40 looks like. And she said it again at 50, and she, she celebrated her 60th birthday. It was a fundraiser for, for the Miss Foundation. So that one of the things that the women and the women's movement began doing is not hiding age and not hiding talent and not hiding brains. And we have then had all this experience of living often multiple lives. Women that you know, if not yourself, may have had more than one, it's quite likely you've had more than one significant relationship. You've probably had more than one uh, significant occupation. You have lived probably in more than one place. And so one could say that each of us who have done these things have had multiple incarnations. We were this kind of person doing this kind of thing during one phase. Were you marching in Chicago when, for example, uh, did you have an activist life at some point? Did you settle down at another point? Uh, The variedness of one individual woman's life is very marked as a possibility. And then if you put women in a circle and you start sharing stories about what you have been through and where you have been before you now come together. It's a remarkable, you take any five, six women and you put them in a circle together and they share the story of their lives and you have an amazing, usually, tapestry of variations on themes and variations on experience that come then together. 
So back in the late 60s and the 70s, women did a lot of that. And then they went out of their circles and they, or consciousness-raising groups, and they stirred things up. They insisted on defining things for themselves. They wrote a lot. They put a lot of what they wrote into anthologies. Ms. Magazine came out. The Hinterlands got the benefit of the consciousness-raising groups. And it, it, it struck a note. And the United States of America changed rather radically over a decade of time. And I think of this now as something that you could understand through what Malcolm Gladwell has spoken about as a tipping point. In the main circle, I, I talked about how women's circles um, with the spiritual center could bring about an end to patriarchy in its, its spiritual uh, and psychological way uh, when a critical mass, a critical number of circles, which based on the story of the 100th monkey, which was based, was the story that kept anti-nuclear activists uh, keeping on at the beginning when people said, conventional wisdom says, that ordinary citizens could not stop the nuclear arms race between the superpowers. And yet people did work on this anyway because it was the only issue worth working on. We were either going to be blown up or not. And so a lot of people began working, even though other people thought this was a foolish effort. And they worked on it, and they had the story of the 100th monkey, which was questionably science, really an allegory, and really an allegory that was based on Rupert Sheldrake's theory of morphic fields. It says when a critical number of any species changes a way of perceiving or acting or doing, it changes the behavior of the species as a whole. And that basically what was not done before becomes a new habit that is then what the species does. So the idea that kept the anti-nuclear activists going was the 100th monkey, and it was a story of, of how one female monkey named Emo changed her behavior and how that ripple effect on her friends, on their mothers and their cohorts, changed the behavior on this one island. But then because, like the aquifer that is underneath us all, like the collective unconscious, which Rupert Sheldrake says is the human uh, morphic field, the collective unconscious, at a certain time, as the scientists watched monkey colonies on unrelated, unconnected islands, pretty soon this is what monkeys did. So the anti-nuclear activists worked even when it apparently had no effect, thinking that for the 100th monkey metaphor to kick in, for there to be a critical mass that would change the perception that nuclear war was inevitable, there had to be a 10th monkey, a 14th monkey, an 80th monkey, and a 99th monkey before the 100th monkey effect could happen. In the tipping point, the experience is, again, critical mass. But what Malcolm Gladwell talks about is the epidemic of a virus. And, and like the AIDS virus, it can be kind of endemic in some little pocket somewhere in Africa. And then there can be an increasing number of people who get it and carriers who bring it further and further. And then with geometrical progression, at a certain point, a fairly latent disease becomes an epidemic. And he points out how this happens through geometric progression. And geometric progression is amazing. It basically says if you start out with something and you double it, and then those people double it again, and it gets it, it, there's an exponential or a geometric progression. And his, his example, which is absolutely mind-blowing, is that if, if it were possible to have a big enough piece of paper to do it, which it's not, but so, so, but so, 
but the idea is that if you had were given a piece of paper or you looked at a big piece of paper and you were asked, how tall a stack do you suppose it would be if we fo- could fold it 50 times? And he said that no one has suggested that it could be any taller than a refrigerator. When in fact, with geometric progression, if you could fold it that many times, on the 50th time you folded it, it would, it would be a stack that would go from here to the sun. And then if you folded it over one more time, it would come back to the earth. That is something about geometric progression and why it is when a critical number of people change something, it changes culture. I think that there was a critical number of women's consciousness-raising groups that went through the culture and got to the tipping point, and then it became... It doesn't mean that 100% of everybody agreed that women, women were equal in so many ways and should have equal access to things, but... It moved through the culture and moved from being unthinkable to being what the law and public opinion considered the new norm. This is how fast and how change can happen. And what I'm addressing in my own way is, is to talk about how when you're in the third phase of life, it is a new time. It is a new time in which For one thing, the expectations that were so strongly on us in the first part, or first half, or first stages of our life, where, where, you know, you're, you're, what are you going to, where are you going to school? Uh, What kind of job are you going to get? Uh, When are you getting married? When are you going to have kids? I mean, the basic questions um, just are on the expectations of the first two, uh, first two segments of adult life. And then there is the, uh, also the assumption of remaining stylish, especially as you're young. There is the, the dress code. I mean, probably it's worse in junior high school than any other time, and it keeps getting you know, pretty enforced, dress code, dress code. And then, interestingly, as you get older, you get to dress the way you like. Uh, as you get older, you also have a lot more autonomy. And this is why it's more possible to be authentic in the last third of life there isn't a whole lot projected on you anymore about what the social expectation of conformity is. There may be ideas within your own family about what an older person should, how, how an older person should behave, but it's easier often to break that assumption. And it isn't that strong compared to what culture has expectations of us. So here you get to the third phase of life. And uh, there isn't even a word for it that sounds good. That's one of the first problems with it. Postmenopausal is not the greatest description. <laughs> and, we, and I must say, and I do say in this little book, that none of us aspired to grow up to be crones either. <laughs> but you add juicy to it. And you add a concept of what a crone and a crone phase really is like. And you redeem a word that had great honor way back before when there was a great goddess and it was Mother Maiden Crone. To be reflected as an aspect of the great goddess and as an aspect of the moon, of the waiting phase of the moon. And for this to be the wisdom years where you became a wise woman, a healer, um, this was a different time and a different age. There was a time when the word hag was an honored title. That one was beyond redemption as a word. But hag and the word for hag is still the basis of the word hagiography, which is a study of saints. So once upon a time, a hag was a saintly or holy woman, and that was a great title of honor. Well, 
I don't know what to do with that word. That one, I you know, maybe maybe I'll write something about hags when I'm 80, but not <laughs> not yet. <laughs> right now, it is. It, first of all, it's a women's spirituality movement that ha- that that led the way to uh, the 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 word crow. That in in parts of of the United States and other places. Um, where the women's spirituality movement has taken hold, uh, women often have croning ceremonies. And I remember when I used to do women's wisdom workshops in Montana, doing one one year with Brooke Medicine Eagle, and she introduced the notion of the grandmother lodge and the crone ceremony or grandmother ceremony. And in, in her culture, grandmother is a title. You don't have to biologically have, be one. It is a title of respect uh, that honors an older woman. And in the indigenous culture of the Seneca nations or the Iroquois Confederacy, it's even built in and it has held throughout the whole history of the United States because it was there in place before the United States was born. The framers of our Constitution adopted whole pieces of the balance of power uh, in the Iroquois Confederacy what they left out were two things. One, that men and women were equal. They left that out. And the other thing they left out was that in their governance, there is a council of wise women. The women's council is a council of women who are beyond their nuclear families. They are, there are women who are in the grandmother lodge or crone age. And they are chosen to be in the women's council and that council has uh, determines what the priorities of the tribe shall be or the five nations were to be, including whether the five nations would ever go to war, including with every decision thinking how, would it, how it would affect the people for, five, for seven generations to come. What a different way of looking at things. And the women's council selected the men's council. Can you imagine if crone wisdom women chose the leaders of this country (laughs) based on how well they would look after the tribe and the children and the land that they were guardians of? Imagine how different that would be. Well, that's what the Seneca Nation's policy is, to do just that. So with Brooke's background and appreciation of the wisdom of the indigenous peoples, um, we did uh, what she suggested, and I, I think is quite appropriate, that in the first two phases of our lives, someone is always uh, telling us we have now reached that point where we have done well enough to be certified or, uh, or get letters after our name or whatever. Um, to be a crone might be a very different experience, that it's up to the individual woman or man who de- to define herself as now being a crone. And what we did in our, you know, ritual is important, and it doesn't have to be a ritual that, a ritual that has some depth of meaning in which you actually say something, do something that signifies something important with witnesses has a power. And the, the ceremony that we suggested was, one, the idea that any woman here who was postmenopausal, either because she was biologically menopausal or because she had uh, 
entered menopause early because she had had her uterus removed, which a number of women have by the time they are 40 or even 30 sometimes, uh, could think about whether she felt herself to be a crone. And the only requirement was, one, you have to define it yourself, and the second thing you had to do is to stand up and say to those of us who were witnessing what you had learned from your own life, what wisdom you would pass on to others, and how you learned it. And it was really how one would come through something wiser for having gone through it. And if you remember the story of Demeter and Persephone, after Persephone is abducted into the underworld, after her mother mourns for her, uh, tries to sublimate her grief, ends up sitting in her temple on the hill just grieving, after finally uh, Zeus sends uh, Hermes to fetch Persephone, when, because Demeter is sitting in her temple on the hill, nothing on earth grows and there's going to be this, and this wasteland is happening. And only then does he pay attention. And only then does he send Hermes down to fetch Persephone. And when Persephone comes back, she has been changed by the experience as indicated by two things. One, she ate the pomegranate seeds when she was in the underground. And that means that she integrated took into herself something of the experience. We know from the myth that had she eaten nothing, she would have been restored to her mother as the young maiden in the first phase of her adult life, as if nothing had happened. But because she ate the pomegranate seeds, she would now return periodically to the underworld, but she now was queen and guide to others when she was in the underworld. And the reason may have been not just about pomegranate seeds, but about the acquisition of wisdom. Because there is this line that follows, that from the time Persephone emerged from the underworld, Hecate proceeded and followed her from that day forward. That she gained Hecate's wisdom through making the descent into the underworld and coming out the other side again. And I think this is where most of our wisdom comes from. That it comes from having lived life, gone through some really difficult times, which were like being abducted into the underworld, that we made it through and had more compassion and wisdom as a result, and that we learned something from that experience. And often it has something to do with then being able to extrapolate that experience and have a great deal of compassion and connection with other people. In, in um, my own uh, story, the part that I described in Crossing to Avalon, my experience of being initiated into the women's movement happened to come through uh, labor and delivery. When I had one of those um, experiences in which I, I suddenly had this, this real sense of being like every other woman who had ever been pregnant through time, and I was like any other woman who had ever been through labor and delivery. And it, it, that sameness made me an initiate into the women's movement. Up until then, I was this exceptional doctor, accomplishment person. And I didn't feel that a kinship to every woman. But to understand what women throughout the ages have done and how hard and painful and miraculous giving birth was, was for me a personal initiation. And I think that that is one reason why, whenever things like war breaks out, which we initiated in, in March, um, and we initiated it in Iraq on the first day of, around the first day of spring, which felt like a really bad juxtaposition. But um, when the invasion happened and we watched on television screens the 
invasions with the maps and the arrows and the commentary from the embedded uh, journalists, and we were introduced to the the might of our army and the the uh, speed of some of the of, of some of the um, machines that could move over that desert terrain. A lot of men, maybe not all of them, but it certainly seemed that a great majority of men looked on the looked at that and were impressed by the diagrams and the arrows and the machines. And there was a certain feeling in the country that this was Team America and we were just cheering on our team and we're number one. And this was sort of like the big Super Bowl or something. And like women also as a gender tend to look at the Super Bowl, there is a kind of, well, (laughs) different reaction. Most women I knew were not impressed by all of that. And many of them were concerned for the people, the uh, collateral damage on the other side, and the soldiers on our side, men and women now, who are our kids. I mean, if you're a crone age, a 18 to 24-year-old is a kid, younger maybe than your own kid. And it isn't just whether that kid on their side or our side is killed, although that's major. It's what happens to their soul being out there doing that sort of thing. I'm aware that if the world is to change, I would say it is up to crone age women who could make a difference. In, in uh, the United Nations, in principle, that has been acknowledged in uh, UN Resolution 1325 that I only learned about because I went to the United Nations to the um, Commission on the Status of Women. And it's not that anything got broadcast through our media because we don't get very much information about a lot of things. Certainly not that the United Nations, including our country, um, got behind a resolution that on paper is is referred to as a Women, Peace, and Security Resolution. And on paper what it says is that women, recognizing that women have something to contribute to the peace and security process, that women should be present whenever peace and security is an issue. It means that women should be present at all the negotiating tables. Well, we're not. Uh, It should be, women should be present uh, after every war to help things we're more there, actually, women all over the world, and all the steps leading up to potential conflict, that women should be present when these are coming up. I, I heard, I heard uh, the last time I was at the United Nations, which was just last, October, last month, um, about how, and through a film uh, that has been filmed just over the last year and a half or less, um, and, and a new organization that has been formed and a sister organization to the Million Circle. So there's the MillionCircle.org. There is PeaceXPeace.org. P- and Peace by Peace is, is helping circles to be created in, in all the places in the world where there have been conflict. And they took the, the film crews to, to show on film what women are accomplishing in places like Kabul and Rwanda and and Argentina and um, Bosnia and in Rwanda and in the neighboring country there there was the genocide almost all of the awful wars that persist in the Middle East in Rwanda in Bosnia were were really fratricidal from the standpoint of anybody watching I mean you the religions were different usually uh, culture was a bit different but you know 
they look they look like brothers, whether they're Israeli or or, or Arabs. That's the same way it seemed in so many other parts of the world. And the women in Rwanda have something like a million orphans to look after. And the Tutsi and Hutu women who survive are taking care of the orphans together, forming organizations, making commitments to the children, and saying to the effect that if my father and if my father or husband or brother were still alive, they would want to kill these children still rather than raise them. In one of the places where, uh, where, where peace did come about in a negotiating way, initially women were excluded, and, and um, yet they had been meeting together for some time and communicating with each other, as they, are meet, as they actually are doing, Arab women and Israeli women meet in circles, for example. There is an interfaith movement there. But uh, the story was about how when the idea of introducing women into the negotiations <coughs> came up, one of the, the leaders of the one half of the combatants said, we don't want any women. They would just compromise. And... One of the reasons uh, to look at Crohn's and Crohn's wisdom is that women do react differently on a number of different levels. And one of it that just came from research done about three or four years ago at UCLA was how differently women react under stress physiologically than most men, than men in general. That um, this was a group of women who were researchers because of the women's movement, uh, they could be in those kinds of positions. When I went to medical school, and up until now, there's been a, an assumption that men and women under stress react the same with a flight-or-fight reaction. Well, what they noted was that this wasn't so in their department where they were studying stress, that the men did under stress seem to do the equivalent of flight. Uh, you know, they would go hide in their equivalent of a cubicle or an office and, and shut the door behind and many of you know, either because you do this or because the man in your life does that, under stress you often don't see him. He's down watch, hiding watching television or something. And then the amount of anger and road rage that shows up, the flight or fight reaction under stress is, is very physiological. And under stress, um, men's adrenaline goes up. And testosterone enhances that adrenaline reaction. We also know that, that the alpha male in a group has more a higher testosterone level than uh, the men lower in the hierarchy. They, they've done blood tests on when the president of a fraternity loses his position, what happens to the testosterone. So we have leaders all over the world with great amount of testosterone and adrenaline and flight or fight as their basic body reaction. Well, the women in this UCLA stress study looked at, saw that they were reacting differently that they did what most women often do under stress. They talked about it with each other. They sought out their friends. Um, and they weren't doing flight or fight. And when they, did, when, they, when they saw what happened to them physiologically, they saw that stress enhanced this bonding, befriending, tending to your world energy. And they called it the tend and befriend reaction. And what they found was oxytocin, which is a hormone that is also called the maternal bonding hormone, goes up. 
under stress and when it's shared. And that um, if this in turn is enhanced by estrogen, so might women be biologically more able to handle stress in a different way? And then there is our ability to meet together and talk. We use conversation to bond. Your friendships are usually based on what you share with each other if you're a woman, what you do together when you're men. And because we listen to each other's story over time and we listen from a heart place, it is an exercise in empathy and compassion if you listen to people tell you their vulnerabilities. And if men's conversations are geared mainly from the time they're in, playing in the sandbox to am I more alpha than you, and Deborah Tannen's research work says this is so, that men learn to use conversations to know where they are in the hierarchy and also to pass on information. But to talk about feelings is to make yourself one down. It's also why men are acculturated not to ask questions because that automatically makes them one down to the guy who has the answer. So might it be time, and getting around to this third phase of life, crone age, there are the advantages that we have, and I do name 13 of them, everything from, from crones have green thumbs, that is, that, that we help things to grow, whether it's our own garden or whether it's mentoring and, and supporting a younger person to grow. Or, uh, and, and crones um, uh, are juicy, meaning that there is a vitality if you are doing something that matters to you. If you are in persona and doing form, you're not juicy. You're just doing same old, same old. And that is one of the risks, besides turning into a whiner. Another one is that you're going to do same old, same old. And there's no new energy. A crone is involved in something new and something that moves her and something that she is willing to be a, a, a beginner about. This is a time when you can reach back to what you thought you wanted to do when you were about 20. It might be that you wanted to be an actress and now you could, now you could uh, work with a, a local theater, perhaps. Maybe you'll just start out by, by being a volunteer, but maybe you'll start reading for parts, or maybe you'll go to, to uh, the city college where they have a course in, in reading scripts and, and doing this sort of thing. Or it might be that painter in you, or the writer in you, or the poet in you, or the meditator. How many women in the middle of their, their second phase of life have a moment's peace to meditate for themselves? Um, not unless you're serious do you do that. I mean, then you do take time off. But, but, but meditation is something like brushing your teeth. You really ought to just be doing it naturally because you have some solitude in your day in which you can just kind of um, do what women used to do when they, they said they were just washing their dishes or ironing. Ironing is a wonderful meditation, you know, but people don't bother you because you appear to be doing something. But your mind is free to muse and to have something arise from your unconscious or to think about a dream that you had the night before or something. Pretty hard to do in this day and age where you hardly ever have a moment's peace. And now we have the uh, cell phones and the, the voicemails and the emails and all this stuff. To have a moment, to have time too, for, for quality solitude is something that crones do value. Crones value a lot of different things that I thought of when I was writing this book. And the reason there are 13 of them is because my editor thought I should stop there and because uh, 13 was a nice number. <clears throat> and so then I – actually, it turned out to be a nice number because I had, I had written it as a proposal and had, had written about the first five or six of them. And she asked me how many did I think I would have, and I said, well, I, I don't know. I'm just working on them. 
And, and she thought, well, why don't uh, 13 would be nice. So 13 it is. And there are only two don'ts. Crohn's don't whine. Otherwise, you can't get through the transition into Crohn's. You're just stuck at the, at, at the threshold. And Crohn's don't grovel. Grovel? Where you, where, you know, when you want to be accepted, um, often by a young man or sometimes by a particular group of people, and you, you, you do whatever you have to do in order to get your way in, and your attitude is that I'll do, I'll grovel. It's like the, the, a dog that has been punished and is creeping back and looking humbled. You don't want to do that. Uh, and all the other ones are quite are, are, are very positive attributes. Now, I say, and in my own energy of this particular phase of my life, it's to be more activist because I really do feel that in this next election, it will make a great deal of difference what happens. I also want to, to have put a lot of, of, of energy into helping there to be a fifth UN conference on women. One is not scheduled now. There should be one. There should have been the Beijing. You know, we think that they come automatically. Well, they don't. There is no Beijing plus 10 planned. So the organization that formed around the little book, The Minute Circle, that I, by the way, did not form, but had was, invi- was asked whether, whether they could use the name of The Minute Circle and would I like to be involved in, in its beginning, which I have been. But we are involved in uh, bringing the, a, a fifth, at, a fifth women, international women's conference to Brazil, after all. But, it, but if it happens, it won't happen until 07. But my feeling ever since I got involved with the Minute Circle and, and Crohn's Don't Wine is to think about how there are 45 to 50 million American women over 50 that were the women's movement and therefore have a first-hand experience of watching the world change because of grassroots women, and the bulge of baby boomers who were aware of the change that the women's movement made. I don't think the young women of 20 and 30 get it. They get what happened as their, as their entitlement. And that's what happens when the culture changes. That's why we take voting for granted, that the suffragettes had to work on for decades before we could have it. But once women got the vote, it became the norm again. It was like, oh, of course women have the right to vote. Well, the fundamentalists of every religion don't happen to want women to have what it was that we acquired during the 70s. Whether it's the Taliban or uh, the fundamental right in this country. Take away women's reproductive choice. That changes things. Take away the notion of, of real equality between the, the, the sexes. And we could be back to the way things were in another generation. So it seems to me that we are in an, an amazing place in history where, once again, for example, the nuclear threat is back. We thought that when the nuclear arms race ended and the Berlin Wall came down, that the nuclear threat was over. And what we have found is that it might have been just a remission. And there could be an exacerbation as we talk about developing new nukes that somehow we could just sort of put down into the ground and blow up a little bit or something like that. So the possibility to retrogress strikes me as being quite possible. And so 45 to 50 million women 
who are in the third phase of life, if all of us do our thing in terms of individuating, that means that 10% of you might seriously meditate. Another 10% might seriously paint. 10% might do all kinds of things. But if only 10% became genuinely activists because you had an activist archetype in you, that would be 5 million women in this country that could change things because we did before. So my particular current interest is in activism, and it's insane that crones together can change the world again, and it isn't just women who are crones, but the exceptional man who got to be one, in part because of the women's movement, who was present in the delivery room and in the labor room and bonded when that first vulnerable child was put into his arms. And when he saw what his wife went through to deliver that child, had a whole new respect for what women had to do to have children. Uh, A man who raises a child has the very same kinds of feelings that a woman does, really, in watching in, in the possibility of losing that child as a soldier. He's acculturated to want his son to stand tall and do the right thing via being a man in the world. But he, too, the father who has diapered that child and and felt the vulnerability of that boy, uh, doesn't feel any different at the possibility of losing that boy that that the mother does. Um, and then there are the men who uh, gain the wisdom and compassion uh, through their experience of taking care of someone who really needed them, whether it was a child or whether it was a partner who was dying of AIDS or whether it was a spouse or a parent who became very dependent and vulnerable, and he did that kind of compassionate work, that empathic work that changed him. Or he was an alpha male and didn't think about uh, collateral damage of any kind, whether it's to stockholders or to workers or to you know, people in foreign countries, because he didn't really have much of an experience of vulnerability, and then he did. He had a heart attack and, a, and an operation. He had prosthetic cancer. He had something in which... <clears throat> He was stripped of all that sense of invincibility and all of that and knew what suffering and pain and dependency was like. And when he came through the other side, if he took of that experience like Persephone, if he did the equivalent of eating the pomegranate seeds and integrated that experience into him, then he could be a world leader, an alpha male on the world stage and still be a crone, as Nelson Mandela was after getting going through his imprisonment. And in fact, the, the world leaders on the gender side uh, who have made a difference as crones have not been women. We've seen world leaders who have been women Zeuses, like Margaret Thatcher. But the, the, the men who have been like the Dalai Lama, uh, like Nelson Mandela, like Gandhi, I think Jimmy Carter, I think Jimmy Carter has been a crone. There, there's a, a, a man who has developed his feminine or nurturing side knows about the feminine principle, is a whole person. And I'm thinking this is fairly exceptional. In Jungian groups, it is what the men who are in Jungian groups have generally aspired to do, that for whatever reason that you came to a Jungian perspective, then becoming in touch with the feminine side, uh, knowing something about the inner life, and having the potential to then be an exceptional man, as I'm describing it, an exceptional man can be a crone. And then to say that crones together can change the world and needs to. If ever there was a time when we could make a difference, it may be in the next five years, 
So I hope I'm stimulating you to think about what you might do if you have 30 or 40 or 50 more years to live in this third phase. And I will end it with just that phrase that I often quote from Mary Oliver, who says at the end of A Summer Day in that poem, doesn't everything die and too soon? Tell me, what do you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Thank you. Well, we have time for uh, comments, questions. Yes. Um, when I started working with Gods in Every Man, I also, I mean, the title had to sort of be the matching pair with Goddesses in Every Woman, but with both books, I now am saying that clearly you can find the male archetypes in women, and Margaret Thatcher was a Zeus, and Condoleezza Rice is, is very much like an Apollo woman in her um, serving the the Apollo was the god who I um, thought of as George Bush the first, the man who got to be president but who so easily served as vice president, so easily served as a corporation man sort of person because the Apollo person is a thinking, is a, is a mental archetype, um, a thinking person, and one who is has considerable distance usually from feeling. So I know that, that she has something of that quality. Um, she's a bit of a cipher in lots of ways, and that she's very, she, she doesn't reveal very much of herself. But she certainly is always putting her talents to serving um, the men. This is also an Athena quality, so Apollo or Athena. Athena probably um, staying with the... With the the goddesses, as Condoleezza Rice was clearly, is, is, does Athena really well? Athena was a father's daughter, and always sided with the heroes, and never felt much of a bond with women. And so I, I would say she was probably an Athena woman, who may run into the kinds of things that could transform her. I, I wrote in Ring of Power about Brunhilde, who starts out as a Valkyrie and is clearly a father's daughter, whose pleasure it was to serve him, and then when she made a decision on her own because she was moved by compassion, when she, when she admired and was moved by Sigmund, then she was expelled from her role and stripped of her divinity uh, by a rejecting Votan. And Condoleezza Rice could run into that. That is one of the, the transformative experiences of young or Athenas of any age who thought they were one of the heroes and then found that they still were marginalized. Any other comments? Yeah. There's going to be a whole lecture on the Da Vinci Code. Did you know that here? That uh, Tom uh, Lavin, sometime this winter, Tom Lavin, who, who spent part of his educational years in seminary, is going to be talking about the Da Vinci Code. I, I'm delighted with the idea that the Da Vinci Code is a bestseller, that people are fascinated with this whole thing about what is the grail. I, uh, the book Crossing to Avalon um, 
had as a working title before it had that title, The Grail is a Goddess, or The Grail is a Woman. Yes? I'm very sympathetic with your view of the sense of male taking touch with the feminine and having this uh, a feeling sense. I'm interested in hearing what you have to say about a woman's process of individuation coming into her mask and what kind of attributes. I think you might see it in Crone Age women who uh, are able to move into their authority. I'm not a strict fundamentalist thinking Jungian, by the way. Uh, <laughs> which means that by talking about the archetypes in us, uh, that, that uh, like, like a, just to get a little theoretical for a moment, Jung said, um, you know, define the whole anima, anima and animus. And the theory implies that there's an enormous gender rather than individual difference. That a man's feeling function is done by the anima, and it's always inferior to a woman's feeling function. And a man's, a woman's thinking function is always done by her animus, and it is then, by definition, always inferior to what a man could do with his thinking. And yet his theory of psychological types has no gender differences. And a woman can have a superior thinking function and a man can have a superior feeling function. So I don't think those particular abilities uh, are necessarily the same as masculine and feminine. I think more along the lines of, of when I think, and I've given the metaphor of if there's to be peace, that, the, that the, the dove has to have both two wings, the masculine principle and the feminine principle. And so when I get down to wondering what that might be, uh, it has something to do with wholeness, certainly. It has something to do with that the masculine principle of logos, as in left brain, uh, has a great deal to do with why hierarchy works so well in the culture we are in. And that's that's part of the masculine principle of of hierarchy. But hierarchy doesn't have to be power over domination. It can be a hierarchy of ideas. It's responsible for all the scientific ways in which we, the phylum are put down and things like that. And that the founding principle is about relatedness and nurturing. Um, it's not exactly answering your question, but I... However, I'm, I'm aware that many women who've been critical of Jung have found reasons to be critical of Jung. But is also uh, is it also a criticism of his ideas, and specifically of the anima animus? Oh, he is he is a. I think he must have a problem, father problem that he projects onto. Okay. There are books on Jung that are positively hagiography uh, uh, worshipful, and there are. Books on Jung that are positive to make him demo- practically a demon, yeah. and and so what she's bringing up are the the writings of the people who really don't appreciate Jung. Yes. I'm sure you've done some exploring the women's spirituality. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about what kind of paths you see are really good for women in this path or follow path or follow path. Well, this is the the spiritual path in Jungian terms. Is the your um, observing, witnessing, choice-making ego uh, having a conscious 
relationship of something beyond the ego's ability to ever really fully grasp, but is aware that there are experiences in which divinity is felt, however you define it. Jung calls the self the archetype of meaning. Most of us call self-experiences, numinous, ineffable, uh, god, Tao, goddess. Um, and one of the things that, the, for the popularity, I think, of, of Buddhism is that it doesn't have a theology for most, I mean, you don't have to have, you don't have to do the theology, you can do the meditation. And in the meditation, there is an experience of, of, of ridding yourself of the persona and all the persona chatter, which allows your ego to just be with the greater mystery, whatever you want to call it, or just the, the, that, that space that then, uh, where you are in the present moment, and uh, you're having a connection with that. And there's one thing about if you meditate, if you are in a circle with a spiritual center, there is that experience that is intentional of spending some time uh, evoking the archetype of meaning in your practice. But actually, whenever there is I-thou, that divinity between us is also felt. So there is an, there's an awful lot of, of meaning, connection, divinity, love um, that people experience in nature, between each other, uh, in moments of solitude. And the path for any individual person is to choose that path with heart and soul for you, where you feel that connection. And it is quite very variable. Some people only feel it when they go out, really out in nature. Some people feel it uh, by, by going to, to Mass every morning. I mean, it really is a varied experience. What I have noticed about women's spirituality is that it honors a, the range of the spirit, which is not, uh, or, or the connection with the self, which in, in um, monotheism uh, speaks almost always of a transcendent divinity. Well, the idea that you can have sacred experiences that are in the body, and it is, is, is a whole reality for most people. They have had in-the-body sacred moments. And then what do you call that if, if your theology says that the only theology is a theology that is not connected with matter, when matter is how you felt it? So if you're on an individuation path, then your soul, this is a soul journey, and where your soul feels connected, psyche means soul in, in Greek, for one thing. Um, but, I, but I think individuation is, is not just developing your inferior function, but always being in touch with the archetype of the self as you experience it. So that's another question, is how do you experience it, and will you remember and then try to integrate it into your life? This was the, the question of, are you on a grail quest? And if you've seen the grail, will you ask the right questions what does it serve? How does it change you because you've had an experience of the numinous? Yes? I was just a little bit more about just your, your activism now and the activism. Yes. And um, I'm interested in like what's happening with the UN or with the women in Israel and the Arabic women and how to find out more and how we can reach out and participate more also. Uh, I would really suggest that you, you look at the website Peace xpeace.org and the mancircle.org and go on to the UN uh, website under UNIFEM just as a starting place well as I see people needing to go in order to drive probably home to where home is I think it's getting to be time to um, 
bring our meeting to a close. Jean, I would like to thank you tonight and thank everyone for coming. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org.